Thank you so much for the invitation to be with you. It really always is a personal joy to be here at, at Emmanuel. And of course, I send uh, greetings from our bishop, Bishop Stewart. Um, I told him, of course, I'm, I'm here today. And he said, make sure to. So I have indeed acquitted myself. Uh, this is, of course, the fifth in, um, if you haven't been here the last few months, the fifth in a series of sermons on the I am statement of John, in John's gospel. Okay. And there are actually... There are actually seven I am statements in John's gospel. And back in May, Father Aaron started us out with the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. Uh, Scott Cunningham from in the cathedral came and visited, talked about I'm the light of the world. Jodas Juan talked about I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, David Witted uh, talked about I'm the true vine. So today we're going to talk about I am the bread of life, which actually is the very first of the seven. So we're going to back up a bit. What's the very first of the I am statements that Jesus had? But first of all, to understand this, let's back up and look at John's gospel a little bit. You know, the first thing that strikes you when you read, when you read, read the gospels is how different John's gospel is. You know, it's like people in different parts of a stadium in a way. That's why we actually call the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them synoptic, which Greek, Greek simply means seeing together. We're all looking from the same place, basically. And John is sort of coming from a very different place, and the church has always took it. Where is he coming from? John's gospel presumed, it's the latest gospel, presumed people knew the other Gospels. We can show that in John's Gospel. He mentions things that could only understood. You must know the story. He assumes this, but he tells us what does it all mean. That's why we have a cycle, every, uh, every three-year cycles. One year we do Matthew, one year we do Mark, one year we do Luke. We especially focus on them, but we always do John every year. John is, the Eastern Church calls him the theologian, the one who really tells us what does it fundamentally mean. So, he's structured in a very unique way. We said there, is, there are seven signs. John's gospel is built around, you know, at the beginning of it, it's seven signs, and he loves the term sign. Remember, the signs are Cana, the very first of Jesus' signs. He describes it as turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. There's a sign, the official son who's near death, who's cured at a distance. We have Jesus heals that paralyzed man who had been at the pool for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? We have that sign, the third. Jesus multiplies the loaves, which happened just before our reading today. Jesus walked on the water, again, just before today's reading, walked on the water. Jesus cures the man born blind and the raising of Lazarus, the seven signs. But John is really big on this. Why are they signs? We often talk about things like miracles or wonders, but there's a very important reason there's a difference. What's the difference? He used the term sign. You see, what's a, what's a wonder or a marvel, a miracle? The very words, for example, mean that something that draws your attention to itself. For example, for the 4th of July, right now coming up, there are going to be fireworks display. The idea it would be that everyone's looking where are the fireworks. You're looking, they're meant to draw attention. But I don't know, here in Chicago, out in, in where I live in Wheaton, we have on, our, uh, on our, main, our, main, our, our main roads, we have special lights on uh, traffic lights. A little white light will go to tell us an ambulance is coming. If it blinks, it's coming unilaterally, you know, if it's coming in the same direction. So what's, what's the important difference here? When we see that light, we're not looking at the light. We're saying, where's the ambulance? The whole purpose is not to draw attention to itself, to point you somewhere else. And that's John's point, is get it right. This is always pointing somewhere else. Don't get lost in the thing. Sort of look for the ambulance. Look for what this is really about. So we might say, okay, what is it really about? Well, let's look at the very first sign. It gives us an idea because it's always the same answer. What's the first sign? Remember, it's about Cana in Galilee. 
the wedding feast. They run out of wine. Now, the gospel makes sure to tell us that this wasn't a practical thing saying, gee, it's convenient to be divine. If you run out of wine, you can make some. Jesus, lest there be any doubt about this, how does he answer? It says the mother of Jesus. How does he answer when she brings out the point that there's a practical problem? He says, it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? No, the point Jesus is making, it's not disrespect. He, he doesn't want us to misunderstand what's about to happen. This is not about using divine powers to take care of practical problems. That's not what this is about. You're going to miss everything if that's what you have, think about. Also, how much wine did they need? Basically, people calculated differently, at least 120 gallons even for, a, even for a French village, that'd be more than enough uh, I mean, to, to, to cover the wedding and then some. Okay, so basically, it's a ridiculous amount, way more. The point is, it's not about the wine. It's, again, it's the ambulance like, well, what are we looking for? Well, we're told. What did the Scripture say? It says, this first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what is it about? It's basically... If the signs point to Jesus, invite belief in him. That's what it's always about. It's not what Jesus does, it's who he is, is what the point is. It's not that we have wine, we have someone who turns water into wine. This is what we should be looking at. Not the gallons of, you know, the barrels of wine. And this is so different from how the world views Jesus, isn't it? So we're saying that the, the world is happy to join with us and say Jesus is a great teacher. Right? He has a wonderful message. As a Christian, Jesus is the message. It's the person of the Son of God, the God-made man, who assumes our, who dies for us. That is the message. So he can never be just a teacher. He has teachings, but the essence of the message of Jesus is Jesus. That is what this points to. That's a Christian understanding of who he is. And also, Jesus is not about how to have a better life. Jesus is about life itself. It's not about you know, giving us a different life, a fundamentally different life. So we're saying, who is this Jesus that we're invited to believe in? That introduces us to the seven I am statements of John's gospel. Who is this amazing person where he is the subject? He's the one that all the signs point to. Who is he? I am what? And the very first one is, uh, chronologically, our subject today is, I'm, you know, I am the bread of life. Well, why bread? We all have a lot of needs, don't we? And ironically, the richer we are, thinking of a place like North America, by any standards, in, phenomenal, we talk about a lot of needs. But really, at the end of the day, what's the number one thing it always comes down to? The one thing that truly, there's no question, there's no nourishment. Food is the fundamental need. Everything else fundamental is... <laughs> there are other things we build on top of it. At the very base of human life is food. It sustains life. That's the real basis. Everything else is commentary. Without food, without life, everything else goes away. So he's saying the very thing. I'm the bread of life. When you're talking about what's really necessary, at the, putting, cutting through everything else, what's really necessary? What's the bread of life? That's what we're talking about. I'm the bread of life what we need for sustenance and growth. Jesus offers an Old Testament parallel. The church has always loved this. Remember, the church's teaching on Eucharist is what happens in baptism, we cross the Red Sea. We talk about it every time we have the Easter vigil. That means we're saved from sin. Remember Pharaoh, we cross the Red Sea. His army is drowned. 
right? There's no question he's going to show up the next day taking boats. <laughs> he's gone, right, in our baptism. But wait a second. The promise is that we will see the Lord in our risen bodies, right, forever. How do we get from here to there? You know, how the children get from the promise was the promised land in their case. They weren't promised they would just leave Egypt. They were promised they'd be brought into the land promised to Abraham. So what about between here and there? They needed to eat. They were going to be there. That was the gift of man in the wilderness. It was the sustenance during the journey. Okay, well, Jesus said, you know, he compares himself, this true bread. He said, I'm like the manna, the true, the true bread from heaven. However, there's a difference, he points out, which is fundamental. He said, you know about the manna, to paraphrase Jesus, but you have the text in front of you. He said, it's true, it, it fed them, but they all did die. It sustained life, but a life that would die. He said, actually, instead of sustaining existing, I bring life. I don't sustain life, I bring life itself. He's a bread that actually gives life, not merely sustains it. Now, something powerful about these I am statements about our spiritual life is look at the tense, I am. As we tend to look at God's promises, which are true, they will be fulfilled in their fullness in the future, right? When we see our Lord face to face in our resurrection bodies, but it's already I am, it is already begun. We like to sometimes say the already and not yet. And the church fathers had a wonderful example we just missed in the gospel right before this that is very powerful to me. I've always loved it. Jesus, right before this passage, the apostles take off across the Sea of Galilee, and he's finishing up, and he walks across the water. Okay, Christ is walking across the water. And suddenly they notice him walking across the water, and what happened, they said they were glad to take him into the boat. So they took him into the boat. They said, that's Jesus. They take him into the boat. And what does it say? We might miss it, but it's a detail the church fathers loved. It says they gladly took him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land of which they were going. Wait a second. They were on the sea, and as soon as Jesus got into the boat, they were there. And they thought that was a beautiful, just a sign of something of profound truth. The fathers told us, for example, Jesus told us we've already had that he's the way, the way, the truth, he's the way. Well, there's God, he's also the destination. So in a sense, as soon as we begin the path, in a very real sense, we're already there, not, but we're already there. It's not just way in the distance, we already have entered into that. So just as that's true, as soon as we take Jesus as our way, we're already basically at the destination, like we're in the suburbs, so to speak, <laughs> you know, going downtown. <laughs> we're already in the suburbs. Okay, and so... Probably the first time that has ever been used with this passage. Okay. And so the same thing is about this life. This is not just a promise. The life we have, that eternal life in Jesus, has already begun when we turn to him. So even though we know the fullness of this in our resurrection bodies, that eternal life, the life that doesn't die, has already begun. This is the teaching for Paul tells us. For example, in Romans and Ephesians, he said, you know, he says the spirit, remember, what's the spirit? The spirit means the breath and wind, right? The word means spirit, breath, and wind are the same words in Greek and Hebrew. And so you know, God breathes into the man, makes him a living being with Adam, right? The, that breath, the Holy Spirit is God's breath of life, the Lord, the giver of life. So what he's told about this life with, this bread of life, this life, he says, if the spirit, that breath of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He said the spirit is already in you that will raise you from the dead. You already have the very medicine of immortality in your very being, thanks to Jesus. It's not that it's already started, it's already there. 
And also, that's why Paul says the Holy Spirit that we right now possess is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. We've already started. So the idea of the I am statements, yes, fulfillment, but the I am, it's already here. It's not a future. It's a present and a future. It's already started. I am. So where do we have access? We talk about this bread of life, the one thing that is needful. Well, there are two places we talk about bread in the script that are powerful that we talk about. How do we have this bread of life? Do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the desert? He quotes Deuteronomy. What does Deuteronomy says? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the Jews love to say the true bread, the one thing you can't live without fundamentally, is that our, the Jews you know, gave us this inheritance, is the word of God. You know, every word, it says every word coming from the mouth of God. That's the true bread. So we have the word of God, the scriptures. However, we also have Holy Communion itself, the word of God made flesh, the word of God written and the word of God made flesh in Jesus. And Jesus said, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. So Holy Scripture and Holy Communion, places where we actually come into contact. Now, how do we do this? The first thing is that wonderful first portion of the passage. Well, they say, okay, he says, you're worrying, you're working for all the work. We all work hard, right, to pay our bills, to try to get ahead, send the kids to college. We, try, we work hard. He says, you work for the bread that perishes. He says, you should work for the imperishable bread. And he says, okay, how do we do that? And he says, you know, what must we be doing to do the works of God? How do we do that? What does he say? Uh, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So how do we feed on the bread of life? You know, we've, by faith but then through word and sacrament. So it's faith that brings us to the Lord Jesus. And then how we, you know, that we, we, it's by faith and through word and sacrament. And we have a quintessential example in the scriptures. The very night of Easter, remember what happens on the very night of Easter? Is Jesus is walking together. They don't recognize him. They certainly don't expect him, given he had died, etc. They they, 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 he's walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what happens there? is he begins, they're discouraged, and it says he began walking all the, the scriptures, talking, hey, what about the scriptures, all the things the scriptures said about him, about Jesus. He walks them through the scriptures. And later they said, you know, our hearts were just warmed with it. You know, it just, when he talked to us, it was different. Like we never felt the scripture this way. Somehow it really spoke differently. And then what happens, they sit down and said they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. That's quintessentially what we do every Eucharist. That's what we do with the, the liturgy of the word. We hear Jesus. We actually experience it. We hear his voice, you know, in the, in the scriptures read to us, as, you know, in community. We hear that voice, and we also personally encounter him. And that encounter is like, remember Mary Magdalene? She, she runs into him in the garden after, but she doesn't recognize him. It's only when he says, Mary, that moment comes where she says, Rabboni, it's you. You know, there's a master. You know, that's the moment where we can actually have that kind of recognition. So we have, we, we hear, we, rec we, we run across him in his word, spoken to us, you know, by, through the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and in the table, empowered by the Holy Spirit, all through faith, by faith, through word and sacrament. Now, why do we sometimes find it hard to find that nourishment? We should always be honest. One of the most beautiful things we can do is always admit where we really are in our spiritual lives. See, God can always work with that. One of my great heroes in the Bible is the one who says, Lord, remember the, the disciples can't cure his kid. His kid had, uh, had seizures. And 
So what happens is he comes, Jesus comes back. He said, Lord, if, if you could help out, it'd be great. I'd appreciate it. If, paraphrase it, if I can, all things are possible. What does he say? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Okay, that always God always makes up that, you know, uh, makes up that difference. Okay, so it's important just to say where we actually are. So we might say to ourselves, I would like, I'm not hearing that. I'm, somehow I'm not, I don't feel that I'm coming here. That, you know, it's like you eat something, I just somehow, maybe that's not happening the way. I'm not as full as I should be. Are there things that could happen? There are two things I'd suggest to you, brothers and sisters. First is how do we hear scripture? You know, I love that in, in the Old Testament, there's a story of, 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 the, of, of Eli and Samuel. Samuel's little boy was dedicated to the temple. He actually worked in the temple, in the sanctuary. And that tent of witness, it was the temple, the, temple, the, tent, the, tent, the tabernacle of witness. And what happens, he hears the voice of God call to him. And he goes to Eli and says, what do I, and then he, because people were out of practice. They didn't really know what to do. And finally, Eli gives him a wise word of advice that should be written on every one of our Bibles. Seriously. He says, oh, if you hear the voice again, he says, what do you do? He says, speak, I'm listening. That's how we hear God. And we can't read about God. We have, we have to put ourselves under Scripture. You know, that's, there's no other way. We will not hear God until we speak and we expect to actually... And something you might not realize, like in English, typical in most languages, is English, where do we get the word obedience from? Obedience actually from Adaudirian Latin simply means to really listen. Like, you know, we say, hey, when you tell the kids, hey, listen to me, I raised three kids. Listen, listen. You are saying, we mean we want action, right? Listen, we expect action. Listen. Obedience is really listening. So how, the first reason we don't hear God's voice is, like, like in Eli's time, we should say to ourselves, how do we hear when God speaks? We say, listen, no, basically speak because I'm listening. And that means I'm listening with an obedient heart. I'm not putting myself in judgment of the word of God. Well, maybe here's some advice. Maybe I agree, maybe I don't. A lot of us do that in, in modern times. We want to consult God like we consult other people who have things to, advice to offer. No, God isn't consulted like anyone else. We actually come to God. We, when we ask his advice, when we ask to listen, we, 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 follow through, we, we follow through. So placing ourselves under scriptures. Lord, speak. I'm listening. The second thing is, what about the table? Is, you know, in the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments of the Torah. You might not have known that. Now amaze your friends. Okay. And the rabbis like to tell us that there are 365 things not to do, something not to do every day of the year. Okay, that's actually a, a joke that they used to teach it. Okay. And the others are things you should do. Okay. But one of the commandments is so important that it's repeated three times. Three times in the Torah, we have the same commandment repeated. Consider separate commandments. And it says, none shall bef appear before me empty-handed. Now, I'm not talking about money. But we're talking about here, we're talking about, we're going to talk more about, about joining ourselves to Christ, one sacrifice, once and for all, for all eternity, to save us on the cross. We're going to talk about the remembrance of that. But how, this is not, you know, this, this is not something that we're spectators at. This is something we come to join ourselves. You know, to Christ's one sacrifice. We bring ourselves to that sacrifice. We don't come empty-handed. What we come with is the only thing God cares about, which is us. Here's all I have. Like that man, here's, here's my, help my unbelief, but this is all I've got, but you've got it. We have to come to the table with ourselves. So how do we hear God's words? We put ourselves under saying, Lord, when you speak, I'll promise you that I'm going to listen. If you speak, I'll listen. I'm here to listen. Lord, I'm coming. Here's all I've got, but you've got it. 
It might just be five loaves, but it's all five loaves. When we do those things, we will begin to taste the bread. We will taste that bread of life. So in conclusion today, you know, in some ways, a lot of us, were sort of in that, we talked about those disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's sort of where we are in 21st century North America. Because remember what happened, it looked like everything had been a giant catastrophe. Remember, some, I think one of the saddest lines in the whole New Testament, it says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Think of that, that's pretty haunting. We had hoped, which means they didn't hope anymore. Something changed. Why? Because everything seemed to be going so well, and suddenly everything has gone tragically wrong. They saw the cross. Everything is tragically wrong. Well, in 21st century North America, a lot of us as Christians feel, are we the only ones who didn't get the memo? You know, in a, a post-Christian society, the world seems to have moved along and sort of is amazed we're still in this place sometimes. We really could have that kind of feeling. We could honestly have, gee... I thought we were doing, the world seems to have moved on, like they did on that day when Jesus was crucified. The world seems to have moved on. How do they get reconnected? How do we move from that place of hope we had hoped? How do we move from that, from a hope that's so abundant that they actually go back at night, which is a dangerous thing, by the way, to do in the ancient Near East? You didn't leave. You didn't travel at night because there was, there was no public policing. You never, ever were out on the roads at night. So they actually left. First, how do we go for people who have given up everything? What happens? They meet Jesus where? In word and table. That's what happens to them, right? They meet him. They met him in that word. He speaks and he walks into the scriptures. And they meet him in the, they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. So that's where we find, we, that's where we will also, like them, that's where we will find our direct connection. When the world passes us by to connect with Jesus in his word and at his table. Now, we all know every generation, Jesus once famously asked his apostles, he said, who do people say I am? And they gave, well, some people say, you know, go on, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. He said, but how does it end? Who do you say that I am? And we all know that um, all of us are asked that same question, of course. Every generation, each of us personally, basically in our lives, has to answer that question. Okay, who do you actually think I am? So in the same way, we're told that Jesus invited everyone right, to this bread of life. He invited all of us, gave an invitation to the bread of life. When he did, guess what happened? Many, if not most, of the people who heard him abandoned him. In John 6, they abandoned him. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? So maybe our prayer today can be this. Can be the prayer, uh, can it be to have a response, the gift of a response like Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life.